It's Kentucky Derby Day 1935, and the bizarre chapter in American history known as Prohibition has just ended. A whiskey salesman, Julian Van Winkle, merges two smaller companies and forms the Stitzel Weller Distillery, not far from Louisville. The man's preferred recipe for bourbon is a little different. He likes wheat as the secondary grain to corn, not rye. The man knows what he wants. He demands quality. He says, we will make fine bourbon at a profit if we can, at a loss if we must, but always fine bourbon. The company flourishes. He passes it along to his son, Julian Jr. But then, tough times. Sales drop. Bourbon becomes uncool to drink in the 60s and 70s, and Julian Jr. has to sell. Eventually, his son, Julian Van Winkle III, Pappy's grandson, takes over the company. And with some help and some good fortune, but mainly just plenty of hard labor, stubbornness, and faith, he rebuilds the Van Winkle brand and reclaims the family legacy. It's an honor and a lot of fun to have Julian as my guest on this podcast and his story of how Pappy Van Winkle became one of the most coveted bottles of spirits in the world is really incredible. Uh, it was it was stressful. You can ask uh, ask my wife Sissy and our and our children. Even um, you know, I don't know uh, what they thought of what I was doing back then. Uh, but I was just hanging on with my fingernails, and it's the only thing I really knew how to do. Um, so I wouldn't. Uh, and I knew it was good, a good product. I mean, I knew damn well it was a good product. So um, I just was going to go down with the ship, so to speak, if it didn't work out. But um, kept trying and trying and trying and and I you know I am stubborn I, I, I'm gonna ride this baby all the way down down to the grave or up to the to the heavens but um, it it luckily worked out with a lot of help from a lot of people as I've talked about in the book but it's um uh, it was you know it's it's do or die but I believed in it which is the main thing these days Pappy Van Winkle bourbon is produced at the Buffalo Trace Distillery we'll get into all that with Julian why Pappy's is so delicious why it's so damned hard to find. Even in Kentucky, where as legend has it, there are two barrels of bourbon for every person. My first guest on the podcast says he is at least partially to blame for Pappy's being so hard to find. He's Wright Thompson, my good buddy and ESPN senior writer who's been writing passionately and poetically about Pappy's for more than a decade and now regrets it deeply. He says he blew that one. Wright got very close to Julian, writing his excellent book, Pappy Land, a story of family, fine bourbon, and things that last. So, Wright, what is the first time that you make acquaintance with whiskey? As a young lad in Clarksdale, Mississippi, in the River Delta there where Tennessee Williams grew up, first time whiskey hits the taste buds. God. Uh, first of all, sorry, Mom. Uh, 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 I, I think it was, I think don't we were, say age four. <laughs> no, I think we were 15, 16 and it was probably Jim Beam. We were listening to a lot of Hank Williams Jr. in high school. So I'm assuming that's probably what it was. I mean, I, oh my God, I don't, I'm trying to think where we got it. There was this liquor store in Clarksdale that famously didn't ID. And like, I mean, if you could see over the counter, they were going to sell it to you. And, uh, and then the, the convenience stores ID'd really hard. And so it, we had this bizarre experience of whiskey being very easy to get 
and beer being almost impossible to get, <laughs> which is not really what you want uh, with high school kids and automobiles. I think a lot of people have a, a Jim Beam slash Jack Daniels story. A lot of guys do from that age. What about the first time that fine whiskey or fine bourbon kind of hits the taste buds? You know, I, I, I'm a I'm a devout Maker's Mark fan. And uh, I mean, I started drinking Maker's Mark in college. Uh, and, I, you know, it, it still is sort of because and we'll get into this maybe. But I mean, it's a weeded bourbon. And I like that immediately long before I even knew what Pappy Van Winkle was. So, I mean, I, you know, I've been a I've been a Maker's Mark devotee, if that's a word, for a very long time. I mean, you know, I get these emails and messages and people are like, you know, I want to get my friend something. He's getting married or he got a job promotion. What kind of bourbon should I buy? And I almost always say, get him a really nice crystal decanter with his initials on it and then fill it up with Maker's Mark. Like that's, that's almost all. I'm like, that, that's what you should do. It's a good idea. Maker's Mark is an interesting story. We'll get into the marketing of bourbon because it was not a long time brand. It was basically created late 50s, early 60s. And I imagine these conversations in offices like Don Draper's and Mad Men where they figured out, let's make it the most expensive bourbon and brag about it. And we'll dip the bottle in red wax like a fine cognac. And here you are in college, must have feeling pretty damn sophisticated drinking Maker's Mark bourbon, right? Oh, oh, I thought I was quite something. Uh, especially with the diet Coke I was putting in it. Like oh, an no, asshole. no. I know. You took fine weeded bourbon and put diet Coke with chemical sweeteners on top of it. I know. I mean, it's like it wasn't just enough to have Coca Cola. I had to have whatever's in that stuff, strychnine. I don't even know. But, like, you know. Sorry, I Coke. Mean, Describe what a, a fine bourbon tastes like to somebody that, that isn't a devotee, to use your word, or, or comes from another planet and doesn't really know what, what good sipping bourbon. When, when you, you're, you're a writer used to describing things. How would you describe that, that taste and what it makes you feel like? I mean, well, there are two ways to do that. I mean, there's the one way that is very much about the taste buds and I'm less interested in that and more interested in this description, which is it tastes very much. It tastes so familiar that it sort of tastes like home with a capital H and, uh, you know, I like, like, I like the gestalt of it. Like, I like the way the ice sounds. I mean, I'll tell nice bartenders, I don't want that one big cube because that, 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 that messes it up for me. I like the way ice sounds. I like, uh, I like a really heavy bottomed crystal double old fashioned glass and the way it feels in your hand. And sort of, I mean, you know, moving it around. Uh, you know, I can still see my dad and his friends. You know, you know, you hold court with a glass like that. You know, and uh, so uh, all of that is part of it to me. I mean, it, you know, it is. Uh, it's not just, you know, here's the science of taste buds, and as it moves from the taste buds at the front of your tongue to the back of your tongue, I mean, there's an entire process, and it's really. I mean, interesting, actually. I mean, when you talk to people who know a lot about this, but, uh, you know, I'm after something very different. I don't think of myself as a very sentimental person. Uh, I don't live in nostalgia. I never shared a bottle of bourbon with any dead ancestors. I don't have memories of childhood of drinking bourbon. So am I completely out of step and ill-equipped to appreciate bourbon on all those different layers? Because it, for me, 
right? It's very much about the present. It, it is about when it hits the taste buds, it, how it tastes, but all, how it makes me feel and the appreciation of the product and the handcraftedness. I don't, I'm not going back generations. I, I'm just right there in the moment. So if some people say, well, bourbon's about myth and history and family connection. And so you're missing the point if you're not no. understanding on that level. No, I, I have very little patience with any sort of dogma. Uh, there is no, you know, I, I'm, there's a sp speech Bruce Springsteen gave somewhere and he was talking about music and he was like, there's no right or wrong way of doing it. There's just doing it. And I mean, that, I think that's true for everything, you know, whether it's food or bourbon or uh, a great restaurant or a book or whatever, a movie. Like, I, I don't. I don't think there is a right or wrong way to do anything like this. I mean, if you enjoy it, like lots of people get different things out of it. I mean, I've gotten to know a lot of people in the bourbon community who are very, very into, you know, who have a much more sophisticated palate than I do and who can really taste the difference and who like to seek out bourbons with very subtle differences in mash bills or in how, you know, the, what the barrels are made of or how, you know, the barrels are rotate, like all sorts of entry proof into the barrel. And so there are 50 different ways to enjoy anything. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, there is, it's like, there's no right or wrong way to love sports, whether you love to go and think about your dad or whether you love statistics mm -hmm. or whether you love to try to you know, the predictive nature of artificial intelligence and what that allows you to know about what these seemingly sentient human beings are going to do in the future. Do you know what I mean? Like they're just, there yeah, is I, no... I wasn't really caught up in right or wrong. I just depth of understanding. I mean, I can't mean as much when you don't have that yes. family history and grain and you just love how the shit tastes when you drink it. And, sure. and then you make your own, you make your own memories as you become an adult. I don't go back generations. My, my first experience with whiskey was siphoning off my dad's J and B into a Mason jar and meeting the other kids on the golf course. And we all what do you got? You got some vodka. I got some scotch gin. Yeah, let's try that. And that's, that's how you sample liquor. And then you get sick and go to the high school football game. But, but <laughs> that's not very romantic. I, I later, no. I later gained an appreciation for scotch. I say, I'm not sentimentalist. I think most of us out here for being honest though, whether it's drinking Coors or or something else. I mean, I I went to Oban, Scotland, and drank Oban single malt whiskey in the west coast of Scotland when I was with a buddy right out of college. And I still, it's not my favorite brand, but I still keep it around. And I still, maybe that is a, a subconscious romantic going back to that because you discover this product that you'd never heard of in a town you'd never heard of, and it it and it just it tasted great when we drank it there, and it still does. Well. It that is incredibly sentimental by the way. And because I mean the, that version of you who uh, wanted to discover a mountain and climb it, as opposed to the guy who is standing on top of a mountain still lives in that bottle in some way. I yep. mean, that's why you keep it around probably, or maybe you just like it. That's I do like difference. it, but maybe why do I like it? Do I like it because of that? I mean, I like lots of single malt scotches and, and, and different flavors of it, but I do, I do keep an open bottle right there and I, I go back to it with affection and probably I'm more sentimental than I admit. But well, I mean, you know, if, if all of those college football games haven't made you a little nostalgic, I'm, <laughs> I, I feel like that's a conversation for your therapist, but, uh, but, but when we talk, when we talk about bourbon because it's a uniquely American product and we'll get into all this, it's made, you know, from 51% corn as the, as the main grain. And then what you put as a secondary grain is, is either rye if you're most bourbons or, or wheat, if you're pappies and other kinds of bourbons that are, uh, that have a niche that are considered fine. But 
then it's the the barrels that it's aged in charred oak, which gives it that flavor that sets it apart. And it is uniquely American and finally has its place worldwide as, as that. But the way it's been marketed and sold is also uniquely American. You write in the book a lot about the mythology, the, just the, the flat out lies, bullshit and tall tales that have gone together with, yeah. the, with the selling of this product because people aren't buying a bottle of liquid. They're buying a mythology. They're buying a story. Well, and if you go to a liquor store, there'll be, you know, a hundred, that's an exaggeration. There'll be 40 or 50 different kinds of bourbon there. And 95% of them come from the same six or seven distilleries. I mean, the only difference between a lot of them is the story they're telling and their hope that either you will have a nostalgic connection to this or the story will make you pick that. Because every new customer, if they don't have some sort of connection with the brand is the potential starter of a tradition that might extend generations. Does that make you sad I mean, that only a few distilleries are making all the juice that's out there now? And then, um, I mean, a lot of products have gone that direction. Nothing you can do to turn back the clock. No. And, and as if, you know, you get a couple of drinks and anybody in this industry and they will tell you that the accountants are running it at the detriment of mm. the consumer. And there are a lot of sort of, you know, the, uh, the entry proof, of the barrel entry proof, you know, there are a lot of different things that because of the tax, the way this stuff is taxed, that it would be better for the product to do it one way, but it is better for the huge global conglomerates, bean counters to do it another way. And almost always the accountants win. Uh, I mean, Maker's Mark is one of those places that actually, you know, doesn't do that. And, uh, you know, it makes the whiskey smoother and softer. And, uh, you know, all of that stuff is very, it's sort of sad. I mean, like if you get, you get old bottles, I mean, not even that old seventies, eighties, uh, of not even expensive bourbons, you just get them and you can sort of taste the difference. Mm. Uh, you don't even have to be that sophisticated. You know, my brother-in-law gave me six pints of like 1970s old charter which is not, I mean, you know, it's not crazy, expensive, fancy. And I'd love to bring those out and pour them for people. And they're like, what is this? And I'm like, this was a $3 pint of whiskey. And it's, the, it would be the best thing. It's people, it, it, you know, people go crazy for it. Just so because of the old methods. Tell, you, you, you do write in the book about yeah. all the things that go into the flavor that maybe you have to have a somewhat sophisticated palate to understand, but the, the machinery of the still, was it, old fashioned machinery, which, you know, Pappy is when it was sits so well or distillery made up until what the early nineties. And people say that tasted dramatically different in, in their experience from newer machinery that distilled the bourbon. Well, it, you know, it's the way the grains are ground is different. Uh, the, the yeast is different. I mean, uh, they went from a live yeast to a powdered yeast at most places uh, Julian thinks that the original Stitzel Weller live yeast is still in existence in some freezer and somebody like he's like, it's out there somewhere. Uh, and uh, well, there's the next book, man. The, the, the Al Capone's vault quest for like they, they find the frozen <laughs> yeast and then oh unleash God. it on the world and sell it for $10,000 a bottle. I know a hundred percent. That's what we should do. Uh, the, uh, you know, the water, you know, 
they don't use the limestone aquifers because of pollution anymore. I mean, the Stitzel Well is that real? Is... The, the, the Kentucky reason why Kentucky became the bourbon capital is because farmers basically got tired of paying taxes, left Pennsylvania, New York, came down there. And instead of growing rye, grew corn, couldn't sell it. Surplus corn ends up getting distilled. But people talk about this special limestone filtered water in Kentucky being like an essential ingredient. Is, is that myth or is that real? You know, I thought it was myth, uh, but Julian swears it's real. And he's not one of those guys who really, he loves to poke holes in his own mythology. I mean, it's a little bit of a party trick, but it's also real. I mean, he, you know what I mean? He liked, yeah. like, you know, he loves to be like, well, I've never made a drop of whiskey in my life, you know? And people call him a master distiller or something. As in an introduction, he's like, nope, never done that. Uh, and so, it, you know, certainly that's part of it. I mean, the larger thing that you just touched on, though, is that this is an agricultural product. And if you go back to recipe, like the idea, the word that should make you most suspicious is when people start using the word recipe. Because this is not, this was something like the earliest whiskey making manuals is like, use what grains are available. You know, I mean, and, and it was entirely, it was a way for farmers who lived too far from the supply chain to get their crops to market without them rotting. It was a way to keep them from rotting. It's the same thing. It's the reason why country hams developed so much on the frontier of sort of Western Virginia and Kentucky when that was as far as America went. And so these places that have traditions of smoked meat and smokehouses, that's the exact same thing as whiskey. That's just a way for farmers who have pigs to not have the meat rot before they can sell it. And so, you know, one of the reasons there's a whiskey tax is because, uh, well, I mean, there are a couple of reasons, but I mean, one is that, that people were using it as currency. Mm -hmm. And so the government wanted their cut of it. And, uh, and then I just love this debate, you know, when Alexander Hamilton was trying to figure out how to pay for the revolutionary war, he looked around the city where he lived, which was full of saloons and said, what we need is a sin tax. Let's put a tax on these taverns and on this booze as a way to raise the money to pay for the Revolutionary War, which is a worldview perfectly grounded in facts and in his experience in the world. The problem was, is if you were a farmer on the far western edge of Pennsylvania, that was a huge tax on you. And so it's just, it, I love how in the history of whiskey, you find, you know, the roots of, of it seems like every political debate we're still having. Yeah, the, well, the history of whiskey is intertwined with the history of America. People may or may not know that George Washington was a distiller, and he's always brought into the argument. Many, many signers of the Declaration of Independence, many early, a couple of few presidents, by the way, have been have been distillers as well. I love the fact, though, right, that no one's really sure who who invented bourbon, who who distilled it for the first time. They're all kind of tall tales about Elijah Craig, because have, have some, having a Baptist minister be the inventor of this the devil's brew is kind of a nice story. It's been debunked as just about yeah. every other story has been debunked. But I love the fact that no one's quite sure in the late, teen, late 1700s out there in Kentucky, he was the first guy to do it. Everybody knows the stories in the back of those bottles are bullshit. Everybody, <laughs> everybody knows. <laughs> you just choose to believe it. It's interesting. I mean, the, the commerce of this, you know, the, I don't want to get bogged down too much in that, but I, you're, you're right. You, it's these global brands. I mean, you look at, all industries, but the beverage industry, which has been romanticized, so you can strip that away. I mean, you, you look at um, the fact that just a few conglomerations make most of the bourbon. You, you look at the 
at the fact that people have reacted against that, though. They're craving something. The number one selling spirit in America uh, just became Tito's, uh, a, really? a handmade vodka in Texas, made with corn, by the way, like like bourbon is, and, and not the traditional vodka ingredients. But but if, if you look at that, how can something be handmade and yet also be the biggest seller? Uh, but it but it's that uniquely American thing. It's it, it's it's made in Texas. It's not associated with Russia. And, and here it is, the number one. It's pretty good vodka too. Number one selling spirit in America now. Uh, I didn't know that, but that's not surprising. I mean, uh, uh, the, uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, so we have a Bloody Mary bar at our Thanksgiving, uh, family Thanksgiving and have forever. And so it's interesting to watch the vodka. And so at some point it changed from Smirnoff's to Tito's. Yeah. And I don't know which of my uncles started doing that, but uh, no, it, it, you see it everywhere. And of course it's not handmade. I mean, of course it is. <laughs> they, they're selling like, the story too, but it's not just bourbon. It's all, it's all spirits. But, selling but of course, stories. but who, who cares? Yeah. You know, exactly. one, it is really good. You know, uh, I had a Tito's and tonic the other day. Uh, and, uh, it, but it is it great is, marketing too, right? Because they're tapping totally. into things that we crave. Now we, we tried to get a present for a friend's mom and they were going to Sicily and she drinks Tito's and we're thinking how in the hell we're going to find this in a small town in Sicily. You know what? It was really freaking easy. We walked 100%. into a store and it was sitting on the shelf. And so here's this handmade product from Austin in a little town in Sicily. It's, it's everywhere, obviously, as, as most of the global brands are. And by the way, no one who buys a bottle, including me, feels ripped off. Nope. You know what I mean? It's, it, it's all a little bit of a winking thing. And they make a really great product and they are unbelievable marketers. I, I got, I mean, Tito's, Tito should have been in charge of like all of the, the COVID vaccine marketing. Like they should have just called those guys and be like, look, what do we do? Like, you know, we don't know. We, we don't know how to do, what do we do? You're right about that. The, the marketing of, I mean, you, you look at, I mean, look, I like Guinness and I've been to Ireland and I've drank Guinness I, near I the Guinness it. brewery. And, and they, they used to, they'll tell you in Dublin that the closer you are to the factory, the fresher the Guinness is. Now Guinness is made in 50 countries. It's made everywhere around the world. And I don't know if it, how, how it, they'll tell you that it doesn't taste the same in one of those far flung countries. It does in Ireland, but do you really know when you're drinking a glass of the delicious stuff? Uh, Some people would say, I, yes, you, you what, do sitting in Grove. And maybe this is almost certainly romance, and but like drinking a pint of Guinness at Grogan's in Dublin is my happy place. Like I love that so much. And by the way, uh, Guinness is owned by Diageo, who also owns Bullet, and who now owns the Stutzelweller Distillery, which used to be owned by Julian Van Winkle's grandfather and father. And uh, the, the only thing I was worried about the book was like I sort of write pretty honestly about how they screwed all that up and i was like man i hope i don't end up on some sort of guinness blacklist like a no-fly list where i can't <laughs> give it like well, i'm gonna be like you know if i just go into to grogan's and be like i'm sorry sir you can't get your pictures on the wall you know we danced around let's dive in i mean your book is brilliant um i'll, I'll have mentioned that already in the introduction but I'll, I'll say it to you now it's not uh a book really about bourbon. It's about lots of stuff. And I think that when you read about this topic and I did some research and I'm interested in it, period, a lot of the books about this, uh, spirit are, are, they're drier than prohibition. Frankly, I'm not trying to criticize the authors. They had, they had a mission 
and they accomplish it, but they read pretty dry. Your book is the exact opposite because this is intertwined with rich history, really rich, interesting characters. It, it goes really deep. Your your book does brings a lot of that stuff out. But so what, what would you say after, after four years of four or five years of researching it with Julian Van Winkle and being around him, how did your sort of relationship with the spirit change? Well, one, I did learn a lot. I'm really worried that I'm in the process now of forgetting it all. Like, I, I feel like six months ago, I was like, I knew as much about bourbon as I would ever know. Your bourbon uh, nerdness peaked there six months ago it, and it, I it, fading. It, it peaked hard. I used to, I've already <laughs> forgotten. Like, it's pretty embarrassing. But I mean, you know, a couple of things happened. I mean, one, I, I just, I got to be really close with Julian. And everything he was going through and I found that the most interesting parts of the trips to see Julian were the conversations we were having about life while we were drinking bourbon, not about the bourbon. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I always had this idea of wanting to write the book from two perspectives of people who make it and people who drink it. But I, it, I didn't really know what the thing was going to look like. I had a lot of false starts that I hated and it sort of bummed me out that the most interesting version of this, that the most interesting version of the four years I spent doing this would be something that I couldn't figure out how to get into the book. That felt like a tremendous failure. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, if you go, if you go do a really big game and the story you tell your wife when you get home is more interesting than whatever you told the audience, that's not good. You know, and, 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 you know, good analogy. And, yeah, because you could have written a book. I, I mean, the, the story is interesting. You could have written a book about three generations of the Van Winkle family. Pappy, by the I way, of, grew up like you, son of a lawyer, went into a business that was pretty sketchy at the time, selling whiskey when he was a teenager, takes over, sits a weller, but builds the empire. It's interesting, but it's not as interesting or as deep or as colorful as, as what you ended up writing. Well, you know, I thought a lot about that. And, you know, what I hoped eventually is that it was a book about me and Julian and Julian's family and my family. But what I really wanted was for all, for both Julian and I to almost be proxies where there was enough of sort of a universal river flowing through it that, that it was about the reader. And, you know, I, when I, I, when I see the reactions to the book, it feels like, you know, whether or not you liked it. And I mean, I've been very flattered by the sort of outpouring. It's been, it was pretty shocking and gratifying and a relief, frankly, that people liked it. But, you know, I think whether or not you identified with the questions that we, both he and I were struggling with in our own way, goes a long way to determine whether or not you like this. You know, I mean, it, it, it's very much, it's a little bit of a magic trick, right? I mean, it, it has to be about two people, but it also has to be about you. Yeah, I mean, and I, I I don't relate to past generations of ancestors that much. I don't have kids. So a lot of those themes wouldn't directly overlap my experience, but I got what you were saying. It was a very compelling story yeah. nonetheless. This friendship, you're you Julian's much older than you, so it's a you know, whether it's a, a father figure or just two dudes from a different generation and you're sort of sponging up not just his knowledge about bourbon, his knowledge about life and life lessons that you learn and you're forming perspectives as a new father and as a as a guy who's kind of coming into middle age and, and it's it's shaped by this dude's 
wisdom, which is, is cool to see. And I had a job thing recently, like, you know, an opportunity and wasn't sort of sure what to do. And my phone call was to Julie, you know, uh, which is like, let me just lay all this out. That's your one phone a friend. I got, I got a tough decision to make. And my, my phone a friend is Julie. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, I'm going to lay all this out and I'm going to try to be as pro and con of both sides and honest as I can be. And then I'm going to talk for a while. Then you talk for a while. And uh, I mean, it was tremendously helpful, but you know, he's that, you know, I I sort of feel bad for him. He's, he didn't ask for that. You know, he's, uh, he's stuck with it. It was fun. Like I go to the masters and I stay in a house with a bunch of sports writers. And, uh, uh, this year I brought Julian. And so I just looked over at one point and it's, you know, uh, Steve Politti from the Newark star ledger and, uh, Andrew Beaton from the wall street journal and Julian Van Winkle was sitting in the kitchen. And I'm like, Oh my God, worlds are colliding. I hope they didn't corner him because Julian has a cult of personality now in the bourbon industry. And, and been, been beyond where he's seen as this, like the Yoda, right? He's the, he's like the current Yoda oh. of bourbon. And so he, people, not only they want his product, they want to be friends with him. So he, so at the end of the night, listen, uh, g- give, give me your address. I'll, I, I mean, don't lie. I mean, that, that that's one motive for writing this book that happily didn't become the main motive for you was I, I want to get access to this juice. That's impossible to find except in well, the black market for three grand a bottle. Let me, let me tell you, uh, <laughs> I 100% thought that <laughs> not true. <laughs> I like it. They're just, Did they're, you think after three years with this guy, he's going to take you down to this cave yeah. in the hills of Kentucky and he's going to open the door and there's going to be a stash of barrels yes. of Stitzel Weller pappies that only you are aware of. And you're just going to get siphoned off for life. Yes. <laughs> yes. I 100% thought that was going to happen. And uh, uh, so either that doesn't exist or I didn't make the cut, <laughs> you know, the cult of it's funny. I mean, you know, uh, Julian tells this funny story about, you know, he's often surrounded by people and, uh, he was at some Kentucky Derby party and holding court. I think like Ashton Kutcher or something was there and people were like surrounding him and asking him questions. Like Cal Ripken was there. One of my favorite sto- Julian stories actually is this, uh, kind of forgot about this. He, uh, he, he just is not, he, he's not scared or intimidated, I don't think, by anyone. And just, you know, he just lives in a world that, that he makes and has been made for a very long time. He's at this thing, and Wayne Gretzky is sort of hovering around and interrupting him and, uh, uh, you know, bothering him. And uh, finally, Julian just looks up at Wayne Gretzky and says, why don't you shut the fuck up, Wayne? And he said, it's just the blood ran out of Gretzky's face and he sort of like inched away. But it was just like, Julian is not impressed. He tore the great Wherever one to the, are, right down to the ground. I mean, not probably not that many oh, people is, have toned Wayne Gretzky that since he's about 11 years old. So, yeah. No, and you're like, yeah, there you go. Like, <laughs> you're in Kentucky. This is my world. At what point does the the pursuit of it, the acquisition of it, just overtake the the consumption and the enjoyment of it, and and it, and is that a bad thing? We, we, this is now this commodity, which all the all the ego driven people in the world they got to have the nicest toys. The difference is this toy was made 20, 30 years ago, and there's no more of it, and so it, it's it's like art in that way. It's like a liquid art, not to get too high minded, but it, it's a limited supply of it, right? 
And so now it becomes this crazy status symbol. And, and it, it it's a little bit distasteful because it, it tastes great. It's great at 300 bucks a bottle. I mean, I, I like fine spirits. I'm not spending $3,000 for a bottle of anything. I mean, that, that's, oh. that's, or, 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 you know, 500 bucks, you know, it's, I like fine no. wine, but shit, there's a, there's a, a point where, what are you doing? No, you get, it, 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 it. If it gets more expensive than like a recent bottle of Arista on a wine list, I'm not getting it. You know what I mean? Like I start looking at that and like, that's tough. And Julian will tell you nothing is worth $3,000 a bottle. And so, I mean, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, one, the commodification of it is a little gross because uh, I mean, I I think Julian wants to live in a world we would all live in where old Rip Van Winkle 10 year old is your decanter whiskey and that the other one's are things you pull out on a special occasion. It's also, as a, as a side note, the 15, the 20, and the 23 are not designed to be graduated steps up. They are three very different special occasion whiskeys, depending on your palate. Mm-hmm. Julie and I both like the 15. Uh, you know, they're, they're just, they're whatever you like, but it's not like, you know, it's bronze, silver, gold, which is what a lot of people think of. They think of like, you know, I got to get, I've had the 15. I got to get the 20. The older, the older must be the better, right? Yeah. No, it's designed for what you like. When you make this, this bourbon and it's made to be aged, I mean, Julian's got to try to figure out in what, 2040, like what are people going to feel like drinking? He's not going to be around. Maybe his son Preston will run it. Who knows? But I mean, that's what's, what's being put. I don't think people really fully appreciate that, that what's being put in, 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 barrels and bottles now is, is to be had in, in 2040 and beyond. Well, and he, he's got to predict what the American population is going to want to drink because, yeah. you know, they've been caught out before with warehouses full of stuff no one wanted. And so when everybody's going crazy about make more, make more, make more, that's fine as an idea for a consumer. But if you're the person who has to pay to make this stuff, and then pay taxes on it sitting in warehouses. I mean, Julian will be dead when the, the when whatever they put in barrels to be 20-year-old Van Winkle comes out. And so, you know, he he is it's a very weird thing to be in this business if you really start to think about it. Because you really are you have to live so far in the future that I think it gives you a perspective on the day-to-day that in other industries, you know, I mean, certainly I work for, you know, we work for a cable news network. I mean, that is the opposite of a bourbon company in terms of sort of how time is divided and thought of. And, you know, one of the things being around Julian is that that kind of thing rubs off in subtle but very visible ways in his life, just what his industry requires of him and how it requires him to be in the world. And that's really seductive. Like, you start wondering like could i do that you know their life has a real rhythm that uh that i found very attractive so this this great american spirit which it has all these generational connections I and mean, your family as well i don't know if it if you feel like you're sitting with your grandfather when you have it but if you were to sort of sum up your relationship you've written articles you've written this book you're going to continue to enjoy it don't forget everything you learn when you research the book but, but uh, is this something, you've got two daughters now, but that doesn't mean they can't be fine bourbon drinkers at some point. Do you, do you expect this to be a, a generational thing in your family going forward? Well, 
you know, I, I mean, sort they're of three, lied in or, three months, right? Or something like that. So they got yeah, a ways to yeah. go. They have a ways to go. I mean, I sort of lied earlier when I said uh, there was no free whiskey because Julian has sent me two free bottles of uh, Pappy. And uh, they both arrived after the birth of uh, the first one after Wallace and the second after Louise. And they're bottles of Pappy with handwritten labels with their names on them. This bottle of old Rip Van Winkle was still was bottled especially for Wallace Wright Thompson and Louise mm. McKenzie Thompson. And so I have those. And uh, I think on their 21st birthdays, uh, they'll be in college. They really won't want to see me, but it doesn't matter because I'll be paying for college and I can come whenever I want. And uh, uh, I imagine I'll go up there with that bottle, take all their friends out, uh, you know, and let, let's go pour that thing around. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, th those bottles are going to sit there for 21 years. Don't you love the mental image of those two father-daughter moments in the Thompson family, 18 and 21 years from now when that fine bourbon is finally cracked open? Family is such a rich theme in Wright's book, Pappy Land, the generational push-pull, the ties that bind, a really enjoyable read. Now, Julian Van Winkle III became the third generation in his family to take over the whiskey business. He was just 32 years old. He had four young kids and Man, did he struggle for about a decade and a half before his hard work and the bourbon boom arrived to make Pappy Van Winkles such a coveted, sought-after status symbol. It cannot be a coincidence that the Pappy's delivery trucks are hijacked or rerouted as often as they are. His son Preston's going to be the fourth generation of the family to run the whiskey business, and Julian's triplet daughters, Louise, Carrie, and Chenault, run Pappy & Company, a merchandise company that sells Pappy-branded glassware, bourbon maple syrup, cigars, and a whole lot more. So if you have something nice to pour and sip, I suggest you do so. Here now is the man who has Yoda-like status in the bourbon industry, Julian P. Van Winkle III. Well, Julian, bourbon whiskey has been described in many ways by many people, and some of the descriptions are quite poetic and quite layered. But as an expert who has a world-famous palate, what do you want your bourbon to taste like and feel like as it hits the taste buds? Well, it's, it's not so much what I want it to taste like other than being something that I grew up with and being familiar with. Um, it's what I don't want it to taste like, um, which these days there's a, there's a lot of what I don't want it to taste like out there, which may, mostly because it's kind of young with all the new craft distilleries. But our whiskey, having grown up with it since I was ingesting it as a child for cough medicine, I'm sure. Um, and I pass that along to my kids, by the way. I guess, guess, I guess that's why they all enjoy bourbon, but a little lemon juice and honey and bourbon when you have a cough is, is, uh, you know, it's either that or NyQuil. It's all about the alcohol, I guess, but you sweeten it up a little bit, but having grown up with a certain flavor profile in my, in my, in my brain and in my taste buds and so forth, it's, it's obviously the sweetness and the smoothness and, um, and we've designed our whiskey to be aged a little longer than most. So, um, and a certain, each distillery has its own yeast, profile so that's very important um so we've um, come up with something that 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 i really like you know our family likes and um, uh, 
with Buffalo Trace's distillation that we're doing for us as of 18, 19, 20 years ago almost now. Um, but it's, 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 that's kind of what we're looking for is that sweet, smooth, uh, distinctive flavor that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pleasant experience, not something you just have to, have to choke down because it's whiskey. Well, it's not just you and your family. It's people all over the world that, that covered that flavor you guys have created. So you had no idea as a little kid with a cough that you were going to be used, getting stuff as cough medicine that people were going to be spending thousands of dollars for and, and, try, and, and trying to hunt down and cover that, that. That's a lucky young kid at the time. Yeah, I, I obviously had no idea. Nobody in my family did either. Uh, otherwise, I, I wouldn't have, um, you know, there'd be a bunch of it sitting around. But there's not much, unfortunately, just a few bottles here and there. But um, you know, that that was it. We were, And that's just what we like to say all the other products that are out there are not good. That's not it at all. That It's just everybody has their own flavor profile enjoyment. And uh, this just happens to be mine, which is the weeded bourbon recipe. We'll get into the weeded bourbon and, and how that sets it apart from, from the majority of bourbons. I, I'm going to imagine there's uh, a range of people listening to this that have novice level to PhD level knowledge of bourbon. So I don't want to leave anybody behind, but, but what sets apart weeded bourbon is that after corn, which it must be 51% corn, you choose either rye or wheat, uh, as the secondary grain and, and your grandfather just kind of preferred that. It's what he kind of grew up on Pappy and, and, began to sell it at a young age as a teenager and then began to market it and develop the family business. Um, but more people don't do it that way. And it, it, I, I think it's a, it's an obvious question. Why, why isn't your mash bill as it's called or your formula for success more imitated? Why, why is it, why are you the exception? Well, more and more it is there, there are more weeded bourbon recipes out there in these new, new craft distilleries and even some of the um, established distilleries been around for years are, are, are trying um, the weeded recipe and including it in their, their profile. I mean, their, uh, their whole whiskey category. So it's, um, it's obviously it's something we have always enjoyed and uh, it kind of amazed me that it never really took off years ago as far as other people trying it. But now obviously, you know, people see the success with the brand and the, and uh, the flavor profile that our whiskeys have, and they're trying it themselves. But um, it's becoming more and more popular um, with some other distilleries too. You know, Pappy's exists and thrives today in large part because, as you've said yourself, you were just damn stubborn. And and sometimes it's better in business to be stubborn than than smart all the times when you just don't give up. And it, it, there there were some there were some lean times. I mean, we won't trace the entire long, colorful family story, but but your father, Pappy's son, um, went through some rocky times and bourbon fell out of favor and sales dropped and all that stuff. And then you kind of came in at a time and, and and worked your butt off to sort of resurrect the brand and and, and kind of set set it up for future generations, but. What was that like when, when you're sitting there in, in, in a room late at night wondering if you're going to make it through? Uh, it, was, it was stressful. You can ask, uh, ask my wife, Sissy, and our, and our children even. Um, you know, I don't know um, what they thought of what I was doing back then, um, but I was just hanging on with my fingernails, and it's the only thing I really knew how to do. Um, so I wouldn't uh, – and I knew it was good, a good product. I mean, I knew damn well it was a good product. So um, I just was going to go down with the ship, so to speak, if it didn't work out. But um, kept trying and trying and trying. And 
and I, you know, I am stubborn. I'm, I'm going to ride this baby all the way down, down to the grave or up to the, to the heavens. But, um, it, it luckily worked out with a lot of help from a lot of people that talked about in the book, but it's, um, uh, it was, you know, it's, it's do or die, but uh, I believed in it, which is the main thing. And I, um, and then it gradually, you know, it gets a little traction, a little more traction and, and then things started to take off with, you know, press and shows and chefs and all that stuff. So it was, it was, a, it was an amazing, amazing journey, so to speak. And my dad kind of went through the same, same issue. Um, uh, you know, they, my grandfather and father were doing what I'm doing now. Unfortunately, they were 40, 50 years too early, um, selling weeded bourbon whiskey. Um, and it cost a fortune to age whiskey that long. Uh, in a warehouse you put it in the barrel and sit it in the warehouse for years and years and years and your interest and your property taxes and the, you know it's just very expensive to do it so um it's it, it would have been impossible for us to hang on as a family unless we got other investors but um uh you know my dad kind of like myself just hung on and sold the distillery and went on to continuing to sell our whiskey that he bought back from his from the people that bought it uh, from us, our family, and um, and sold it into fancy, sometimes very ugly decanters. Um, but <laughs> it was a way that, I mean, Wild Turkey and Beam and everybody was doing the same thing at the same time. Uh, selling whiskey was not favorable that the decanters were. Now, just the opposite. People will buy the decanters to get the whiskey that was inside those bottles, you know, filled up in the 70s and 80s and 90s so they buy your stuff in a mason jar that is an amazing it was the vessel not the juice inside that was the main selling point that that's almost hard for people to imagine as the cult of bourbon has grown and exploded and, and your brand has been centerpiece in that it had more to do with what it came in yeah yeah it um and we had you know a couple of artists that help us out and come up with ideas and dad would have an idea and i'd have an idea and um and you know just something new, just some way to get rid of this whiskey because, um, you know, it was evaporating. So we had to sell it. And that was very popular until the price of those decanters got to be forty nine ninety nine and above. And that's when that market died completely. So that's that was after my dad's death in 81. So, you know, the late 80s kind of had to switch over back to selling whiskey again instead of the decanters because that that issue was uh, was dead in the water. You know, Pappy's grandfather, so that generation was among the first to settle Kentucky when it was a wild territory long before it was a state. It was a part of Virginia, and they came came there to farm, and and whiskey kind of grew out of that because corn fed people and animals, but there was still some left over that couldn't get to market, so distilling it was a good thing to do. And just for the, the fact that it's just an agricultural product and and kind of grew out of that, and it's intertwined with the history of the state and the country in, in a very unique way. I mean, bourbon now being um, a uniquely American product that, that, that rivals with anything produced around the world and from humble beginnings. Yeah, it, um, uh, and also, if you're growing all this corn, um, that's a lot of money tied up, but if you grind it up and, just, and mash it for a minute and distill it you got acres and acres of corn into several cases of whiskey so it's um and it was used in the bartering situation so instead of 10 bushels of corn or a truckload of corn it would be you know 10 or 12 cases of whiskey or whatever uh for the same amount of money invested in it a lot easier to deal with and um that was 
you know, that was a great way to, um, to use their crops up because there's plenty of corn and, and grain out there. Um, and, and the whiskey industry kind of thrived from that. Of course, the methods have changed. The, the way that you grind the corn, those, that machinery's changed. Um, I think you're probably using powdered yeast. The live yeast was, was, was a thing in the past. The water, which a big deal, was made of the limestone water in, right. in the state of Kentucky, but that, that's no longer there. Can, can the new whiskey still be as good as the old juice or, or is that stuff uh, irreplaceable because the ingredients aren't quite the same? There's so many variables that I don't think it can be reproduced. Um, we're trying to get as close as we can. And this is going to be a lifelong project probably for me and my children uh, behind me to kind of get closer to that. But it, these experiments in bourbon, I mean, our youngest bourbon is 10 years old. So if we start a project today and put it in a barrel, it's 10 years before we decide if it's any good. Then it's another 10 years to get it to the market. So it's a, it's a ridiculous business plan. It really is. <laughs> we'll talk more about that. Um, yeah, it's definitely unique. I know it's uh, ridiculous. I'd be one way to say it. You know, you're too modest to say it. I've talked to write about this. I've read a lot of uh, profiles too. You know, your contribution to this is considered so valuable slash priceless because you know exactly what that old whiskey tasted like and you know exactly what you're trying to make every bottle you manufacture now going forward kind of taste like and feel like and and there are not many around that that do remember that and you see you you grew up with it and that kind of thing so when you taste the the, the new pappies that'll be on the market in what 2035 or 2040 and, and you're putting it in a bottle you're trying to take yourself back to your youth and, and remember how, how closely this stuff tasted to that stuff. Is that, is that fair to say? We're just trying to get as close to that as possible. I know it can't be duplicated, but um, what we've got is, is damn close. And um, uh, my son Preston went down to Buffalo Trace today. I was busy to taste uh, some 12 year old barrels because we taste everything before we bottle it to make sure it's good. And he said it was just incredible. It's um, um, you know, even, better than last year um uh, so it's uh it's, it's it's something we're striving for i don't think we'll ever quite get it just right but um just be- one reason is because the yeast is a little different from what we had uh back when we had our own distillery at Stitzweller. so um and that's kind of a flavor profile and a and kind of a a back flavor that that you taste um that particular yeast from that distillery is very distinctive as each distillery has its own yeast flavor profile. Um, but that's, you know, we're just trying to get as close as possible. What's the best way to enjoy Pappy's? How do, how do you enjoy it when you, when you crack open a bottle? I usually just um, put it on some ice with, depending on if it's 90 proof, I'll just let the ice melt. And if it's 107 or higher proof, I'll put a little splash of uh, distilled water in there not tap water because chlorine and whiskey don't mix that well depending on what part of the world you're from um and a twist of lemon which has become kind of a i'm just again i'm just promoting what how i learned to drink it uh grandfather i guess pappy used to drink it that way because my dad uh, drank it that way and i drank it that way and everybody i've talked about you know i tell people somewhere i've heard about you drinking with lemon or orange or something I, well, just a twist of lemon around the edge. edge it gives it a little bit different uh, flavor profile, and they taste it. I don't know if they're lying or what, but they say, "Wow, that's really good." So uh, it's that's that's the way I enjoy it. 
I'm going to try that. I'll be more conscious when I put a little water in there or, or I'll be more conscious of how, how I make the ice that I'm using. If you think it's got to be a, a, yeah, a certain kind of water, not to ruin the whiskey, I, I'm all in to, for, for, for keeping it as good as it can be. You know, Chris, we can go deep on this uh, ice deal and water deal. Got it. Your ice has to be made of pure water and it's got to be really cold ice. People say cold ice. What's that? Well, it's clear ice that's white that comes out of your freezer has got air in it. So you're, you're watering down your whiskey a whole lot more than you would if the ice was clear. So you got a good, got to get a good ice machine or no oh, shit. You're killing me. Ice. I got to, I'm thinking about all the times when I put ice out of the freezer right. into this stuff, you know, <laughs> I could be, you can get expensive talking to me. I'll, I'll talk you into good ice machine and all kind of stuff. Wait a minute. Expensive whiskey is not enough. Now I have to buy expensive water. I'm an expensive machine to make the expensive ice. And right. There you go. <laughs> And then nothing but an organic lemon for the twist. I'll try the lemon twist. No, I That's, good. That part. That's fine. <laughs> for people that love bourbon, explain what magic happens in the barrel. Because unlike wine, where a lot of the magic is in the grapes maturing, the, the sun and the rain and the, and the heat combining, and then it's put in the barrel for not very long compared to whiskey. And then it, it ages in the bottle. Now, w- bourbon doesn't age in the bottle, right? It's all, it's all within... The, the span of time that it's in those charred oak barrels. So what, what is going on with the whiskey as it sits there for 12 years, 15 years, 20 years, and 23 years? Well, it's, uh, it's really where the, I think the magic happens and, and you can, you can age whiskey in barrels that are heavily charred. Um, just the heads toasted and the staves charged, you know, a lot charred, a lot of different variables as far as what the barrel can be made of on the inside. We obviously still use uh, number four heavy char on the heads and the staves inside. And where that barrel is put, what type of warehousing and what floor and, um, you know, which is, produces different temperatures and different whiskeys. But um, you pour out a, a whiskey from a barrel that's on the top floor versus the bottom floor. Would you expect that your average Pappy's customer would be able to taste any difference? Would, would they know something was off or, or would it just, uh, they'd read the label and think it's great and they wouldn't know the difference. Well, if you're just taking straight tasting one bottle at a time, it, I don't think anybody would really notice it. Um, I might, but, but, um, just cause I'm used to what I'm used to, but if they took a cool floor barrel versus a top floor barrel and tasted them together, uh, it's a, it's pretty much a no brainer. I think even, even a, uh, a beer drinker or somebody that never even has whiskey, but had whiskey before in their life could, could tell the difference in that. It's pretty obvious. It's clear your passion for the hands-on, you know, barrel by barrel, staying very involved in the process. I don't have three examples of this off the top of my head. My sense is a lot of businesses that are passed down in, in families, generation by generation, maybe the, maybe the patriarch, the initial guy was, was the creator. He came up with the product. He, he was the inventive side. And then, and then other generations were interested in sort of growing and marketing and they were less concerned maybe with the hands-on manufacturing. That's not been the case in your family at all though. I mean, Pappy himself was a salesman and a genius marketer, right? And that, that initially got the, the, the labels that he was producing off the ground early, but, but as it's been handed down, I mean, you, you still seem as passionate and as interested in, in the hands-on as anybody could be. Well, as much as I can be, I'm uh, not exactly doing everything myself. And I've, no Van Winkle has actually produced any whiskey than him themselves, period. <laughs> In other words, none of us have been master distillers, but we try and get people who know what the hell they're doing uh, to do it you know, the, the way we want it done. 
as far as we can do that. Now we're still trying to um, tinker around with uh, all type of different distillation proofs and barrel entry proofs and warehousing techniques and so forth to get it to what you know what we think may be a little better and it may not but um you know we're still trying to monkey around with it to 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 get it um closer to what what we uh what we'd like like to be i don't know if this is fitting or ironic but you know obviously the, the family name and and old rip van winkle was one of the original names for the whiskey and washington irving's story is about someone who fell asleep for 20 years. I don't know if that's a coincidence. Some of the whiskey's aged 20 years. And, and one of the morals of the story is that it's, it's, if you resist and fight change, you do so at your own peril, that there's a constant need to kind of change and evolve. I don't know how that ties into the family business and the, the production of whiskey that is relentlessly consistent over time. Well, they kind of got lucky on that whole story deal. It kind of parallels what, what we're doing. Um, obviously, the old Rip Van Winkle was... My dad bought that label back in the 50s, I believe, and never really used it. Um, with old, He had some ideas to use it along with the old Fitzgerald brand. Um, but when we sold the distillery, he kept that brand name, and that's what we ran with. We ran with that at first. And then, um, uh, you know, the asleep many years in the wood and all that, you know, those little terms came up in old rip next to the tree, sleeping <laughs> through the Revolutionary War. And, um, and the 20-year thing, um, that was, that was pure luck, I guess you call it, because I wanted, when I came up with the Pappy label, I found that picture of my grandfather, you know, lighting that cigar. And I wanted to honor him with a, a label. And I had some 20 year old whiskey that I hadn't sold at 18 or 19. So I said, well, and 20 has a nice round number, but I really didn't think about old rip being uh, sleeping 20 years in the woods. So that's another, uh, blind luck thing. If I didn't have luck, I wouldn't, you know, I'll, I'll take whatever I can get. You've got the 15, the 20 and the 23 dispel the myth that older automatically means better. The assumption is, well, because it's rarer, it's harder to find the older stuff than it is the 15 year, but, but you never intended those to be grades of quality, right? In the, in the product. Mm-mm. No, it's just, um, obviously you start younger as so they all became available because of, um, uh, you know, they weren't back in the eighties and nineties, they weren't selling that well. So I had excess whiskey as did every other distillery. That's why you can buy and sell, bulk whiskey by the barrel every distillery would buy and sell from different ones and people like myself would buy from other distilleries because there was excess product but um uh, you start out at 10 and the first pappy label was a 20 year and then uh was a 23 and we had a 15 year old rip van winkle and we changed that into a pappy label to kind of get it more popular and uh, put it in line with all the pappies were in the same package in the Pappy Van Winkle versus old Rip Van Winkle 15 year. So they kind of bounced around from year to year, but um, uh, the 20 year Stitzel Weller was, was, was incredible whiskey. Um, and we are, uh, the 15 year happens to be my favorite because it's kind of right in the middle, but it's doing these whiskey shows with Whiskey Fest and so forth in different parts of the country back when we used to do that. Um, uh, people would taste the 20 or 23 or even the 15 and say, well, that's, that's too, too old for me, too woody. I like the 10 or 12. It's just different flavor profiles that people enjoy and they're not used to it. Obviously I am used to older products. That's why I'm not, not too much of a fan of, of younger whiskeys. Uh, but that's, that's just a, a you know, personal preference really. Uh, not, not just cause it's older definitely doesn't mean it's any better. It's just a, um, some people can do it. Some people can't. 
as far as um, producing that brand. You know, the, the product is at this point, like it or not, as famous for being almost impossible to get except at ridiculous black market prices as it is for the, the you know, sublime quality of it. Um, I, I think that that that's not that's not a bad thing for the brand necessarily, although I'm sure it creates frustrations. But when when the pursuit of it and the acquisition of it supersedes just the enjoyment of it, I don't know that that's what a whiskey maker wants his customers to, to be focusing on, right? No, there's. I mean, I keep seeing these pictures on Instagram or whatever and Facebook of collections of tons of bottles of our whiskey just sitting there in people's collections, and they're surrounded with old rip bottles, pappy bottles. I'm going. We don't make it to put it on your shelf. We make it to drink it and enjoy it. Please do. But there's too much hoarding and too much collecting and all this secondary market is, is a mess. Um, as far as, you know, the pricing, legitimate pricing. Of the does, bother you, does it bother you that people, you, you, you price initially at, you know, between a hundred, what, 300 bucks is the top, um, retail yeah. price for it. And now it's, uh, sometimes 15, 20 times that. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, um, it only bothers me because uh, the poor people that brought it, the, I say the poor people, meaning that they can't find our whiskey at a legitimate price anymore. They, 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 they built our brand. They bought our brand. They, they believed in us. They supported us. And now they can't get it for under several hundred bucks or a seven, several thousand dollars. So it is frustrating for that. And there are several stores, obviously, around the country that do sell at a regular re- suggested retail price, but um, they, those bottles are snapped up immediately or they're, you know, in lotteries or raffles or whatever. But um, there's one, one good thing that's happened from this uh, secondary market pricing is the charities are just doing great with it. So that, that really is good. We're uh, just amazing amounts of money raised and all the stories, all their good products are doing the same thing, offering bottles for charity. And it's just raising tons of, of money for, for charities where if the secondary market hadn't happened, um, you know, it wouldn't be anything close to what it's, what they're, they're bringing now. That's a great point. That, that's a, that is a great byproduct of the, of the difficulty of it to get. Yeah. It's, yeah. You, you're right though. People, I don't, I don't have a, a, a stash of bottles. I have some, but you tend to not want to drink it because once it's gone, it's so damn hard to replace. So it, it, you do kind of sip it on, on special occasions and it, it can't be an everyday enjoyment for a lot of people unless they just, uh, going to those auctions and getting it. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of little stories about, um, anything from my brother-in-law came over and I unfortunately had a bottle of Pappy out and he drank <laughs> he and his buddies drank the whole damn bottle and, uh, shoot, I'll never do that again to, you know, my son found it or whatever. And I've got, or I've got, I've just got an inch left in this bottle. And I'm not going to drink it till I get another bottle. So it's, uh, you know, it's crazy. Some of the little stories about it. I'll tell you a story. Uh, we, we have a place in the Colorado mountains. So I'm going to a football game. I'm in a rental car. My wife's in New York. And all of a sudden the, the alarms start going off on the app that the cameras are, are going crazy in the, in the mountain house. So she's looking at this thing in real time. She calls me up and said, there's someone who's working on something outside the house is now inside the house. And he's standing at the bar in the living room. We converted this little closet to a bar. It, it's kind of fancy. We actually got some antique mirror glass from Kentucky, coincidentally. And on the shelves, there's a great single malt shelf. We like tequila mezcal. There's a chef, shelf of that. And then there's a bourbon shelf. And she's describing this guy standing at our bar 
pulling a glass out and start, you're starting to sample things. And you know what I'm thinking? I listen, I don't care what he does in the house. Do not drink the pappies. There's a, there's a bottle there that this is about five years ago. I've had it 15 years. It's 15 years. So I, I think it's, it's Stitzel Weller distillery era pappies. And then there's some Van Winkle family reserve sitting there. And I'm just thinking, I mean, horrified. I mean, you know, this is, this would be a terrible way for that stuff to go down. And, and, uh, fortunately he bypassed that and he drank the bourbon that was made about four miles up the road in Breckenridge, which is perfectly good stuff, but very easy to get. And I guess the moral of the story, cause I, I was just, I was, I was, I wanted to turn on the mic, Julian, and say, listen, step away right. from the bar, whatever you want, I'll do anything, but don't touch those two bottles right there. And I, I'll, no questions asked, no, no charges pressed, just leave. And, and he was drinking the local bourbon and I, I guess, and he was having a fine time with it. And I guess it goes to show you, you drink what you know. And thankfully he didn't yeah, know yeah. what he saw there. Yeah. I don't want that old whiskey. I like this two-year-old stuff. This is great. Made, made down the road. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, but a disaster, disaster was averted. Uh, can you demythologize the process? There's a, an employee I understand at Buffalo Trace, not you personally, that decides which distributors get this, which liquor stores get it, and which customers even have a chance in hell of grabbing it twice a year when when the uh, allocations go out. H- how does that work? Because that must be a, a serious headache for that person involved in making those choices. Well, it's once a year. It used to be twice a year. And now it's just once a year in the fall Okay. Uh, where Preston and I will sit down uh, with our bourbon manager there at Buffalo Trace. And, and we get to play God, actually. And we decide which distributors, you know, get how many cases. And pretty much it has stayed the same for several years because it only goes up and down depending on evaporation le- levels or, or leaky barrels or empty barrels even. Um you know, our supply, we make more, we've been making more whiskey every year for 18, 19 years at Buffalo Trace, but the demand keeps going up also. So we can't seem to catch up, but um, uh, we decide how much the distributors get. And that changes just a percentage wise from some last year, say we have more or less than last year, then that percentage increase or decrease is going to be the same. Um, the distributors decide who gets it from there. Mm. We can't, decide, we can't mandate what liquor store or what restaurant get it. We can suggest it. We'd like it to go and so-and-so, but. But that's where the drama happens. The distributors have the power to decide whether two bottles get to this guy's liquor store or this restaurant. And that, and that I'm sure they must be pressure on them. Yeah. It's um, yeah, we get a lot of um, problems because they can't get what they used to, but there are more stores there are more people getting into the business. So the whole, the supply, which was tiny back in the day, is even tinier because there are more, more uh, stores or restaurants or whatever getting the product. So everybody's allocation is going down every year, it seems like, um, or it is. Pappy's um, initial motto, make a great product. And I think at that point, supply was controlled. You wanted to make it coveted. You wanted to make it precious and hard to get. But I know that hasn't applied lately. They, people think you're like OPEC. You just let, let's drive the price up and, and, and the yeah. hype up. By just cutting production, I, I know you're not doing that. I mean, I, I'm sure Thanks that. Thanks a lot, Chris. I'm, a, I'm an Arab whiskey maker. Now. That's <laughs> well, I, I, I said you're not like that because I think you guys, you <laughs> right. guys are trying. I'm sure you're trying to make it as well as you can, as fast as you can, and satisfy a market that now, yet you have to try to project what that's going to be in in 2035 and, and 2040 because that's when the stuff that's going in the bottle now is is going to finally be be brought to market and. 
and you got people all over the world, not just America, clamoring for this. You got you got global markets who want a piece of the magic you're making. Yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, you know, once we put it in the barrel, obviously it's a long time before it comes to market. But it's a it's it's a tricky deal. We but we we're not holding back inventory to increase our prices and so forth. We're selling every drop we can. Uh, we hold back these days a supply for charity events and so forth. And that's really about it. And, and a little bit reserved for, I mean, it's crazy, but for some reason our trucks seem to have accidents or somebody robs the trucks when it goes to the distributor. We've had a few occasions of that. And I say, why would, why would our truck that gets thousands of truckloads of spirits going to Louisiana or Michigan or wherever, um, why would our truck get hijacked or have a wreck or whatever? It seems very, very odd, but I think it's just bad luck. But, um, you know, if, if that happens, we try and give them a few bottles to cover their, uh, you know, their, there's their people believe there, there are no such things as coincidences. So maybe, maybe it's not just bad luck. Who knows? Hey man, yeah. when, it, when, a, when a product is that priceless and that, and that precious, uh, weird things are going to happen. I'm sure. It's very suspicious. And I'm wondering what the insurance adjusters do with all that product that's sitting there that maybe is not damaged, but it's just got a bad label or something but it is a business plan you, you called it ridiculous it's it's certainly unique you're trying to figure out what what's the consumer going to want in in 2035 2040 how much are they going to want and and then trying to to try to it's a time capsule thing you're trying to make those decisions right now it's it's kind of mind-bending i mean right now everybody wants to get the thing to market as fast as possible every product you can think of how to get it to market as quick as possible to satisfy an immediate consumer demand and that's and that's what defines success or failure. Lots of times you guys are the direct opposite of that. Yeah. It's a, as I said, it's a weird business plan to put something away for that long and, and have it drain your bank account, you know, every, every day, every month, every year. But, um, that's, you know, if you, we have, we're lucky enough to have a product that age we think makes it better. And, um, uh, it's a ridiculous business plan, but, and I wouldn't, Everybody that came to me the, for suggestions of getting in the whiskey business, I basically tried to talk them out of it, not because it'd be competition, just because um, it's a very low percentage that it's going to be successful because it's so tough. Um, uh, we're lucky enough to have uh, Sazerac, Buffalo Trace, got some deep pockets so they can afford to do that. But um, And that's because we have a very old, old liquor, our, our whiskey profile is very much a lot older than other distilleries, but um, it's, it's, it's hard to... Um, keep that thing going but it's uh you know it's we're, we're lucky that it's, that it's worked so far we try and not get too greedy and make too much whiskey every year because someday this thing will slow down and um you know we don't want to be caught with too much inventory which is uh which has been there done that so i'm i don't want to do that again but being a privately held uh, owned company um uh, i think we're not going to let the profit get in the way of a good product but it's rare that that money doesn't drive a product's quality. Uh, and I think it, it hurts in a lot of cases when you make a product less expensively, obviously, and we're not, we're really not trying to do that at all. We're going the opposite way. And it seems to have uh, worked for us so far. I'm, I'm sitting here sipping a glass as we speak, and I'm very much in the moment. And then my enjoyment of any spirit is, is very much in the present. So if I'm not a sentimental person, I don't consider myself to be, and I'm not uh, that nostalgic, and I never shared a bottle of bourbon with any dead ancestors. A am I missing the point when it comes to enjoying this spirit? Because so many people connect in all those ways when they sip it. And for me, I just like how it tastes when I'm drinking it. <laughs> right. 
well, you got you got that too. It's enjoyable, but if you really get sentimental and emotional, and you know, Wright brought this to my attention when he um, talking about the book for uh, CBS Sunday Morning uh, with Lee Cowan. He's sitting at our table in our living room, right over there, dining room, and um, sipping open the bottle of this happened to be Stitzel Weller, but with our whiskey that we're putting out now, 10 to 23 years old, you pop that cork out. And that's a bottle of history right there. This stuff was made 10 to 23 years ago. What was going on there? I mean, it's it's like a little time capsule. It really is. I'm I'm I'm, I'm plagiarizing Wright's words, but I, I think that's what he was talking about. It's, it's pretty special to um to something to take that long to become a quality that it is. And it's like wine. Um, our you know our whiskey can last longer than wine in a bottle because it's got alcohol content way above wine, but um, uh, it, it really is quite, you can, you can go deep on, deep on this uh, thinking about what's in that bottle and what was going on back then. No, no, I, I guess when it comes to that, I'm, I'm more sentimental than I let on. I'm not sentimental in most things, but for all the things you just said, you know, it, it does feel really good going down and it feels good to think about the craft that went into it and how it's not just, 15 or 20 years old, but the idea of how to make it goes back 80 years, right? Or, or more. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, yeah, very lucky and blessed to uh, have been born into this business and, and not have screwed it up as Bill Samuel says, I'm just trying not to screw up what my dad started. And I'm kind of did the same thing for my father and grandfather. And your son Preston, you hope will, will, will continue on and, and keep the, the, the family legacy going. Yep. He sure plans on it because that's his his life right now and and future you know generations after that too. So we'll see. Usually What's, the third generation screws it up. So. <laughs> well, congratulations on on uh, doing the opposite. I'm so grateful to Julian and to Wright for sharing their stories and their knowledge. Hope you enjoyed this different kind of an episode. I had a lot of fun researching it. That included sampling and sipping a lot of different bourbons. You have to know. Your, your topic well, don't you? By the way, I, I was left with one question that neither Julian nor Wright could really answer. Bourbon is a uniquely American product. It is our country's great contribution to the global world of spirits. So why aren't the families who have built legacies producing fine bourbon generation after generation, why aren't they viewed with the same kind of reverence as the winemaking, cognac-making families of France and Italy are? or the single malt distillers are in Scotland? Why isn't bourbon the same source of national pride for Americans as vodka is for Russians or tequila is for Mexicans? Maybe you have a thought, maybe some feedback on Instagram, or maybe it'll just take a few more generations of bourbon producing. This episode wraps up season two for the podcast. My co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster and Jason Weichelt, really thank you for listening to these episodes. We'll be hard at work producing a whole new batch of episodes for season three and look forward to connecting with you then. In the meantime, cheers to your health and please drink responsibly.